if you want to go with us to Israel, interesting invitation to give you at this particular time, but if you would like to, we're going, uh, Lord willing, June 13th to the 22nd. It's a, a service tour in the land uh, where we minister to the people there while we tour some of the important biblical sites. Uh, was to include Jordan, but we're not going to be going to Jordan because our service project there is not happening. It was going to be vacation Bible school with missionary kids, but anyway, it's not happening. So we're just going to Israel. The dates, therefore, are different than uh, previously publicized, June 13th to the 22nd. We can only go with approximately 20 people, and uh, about 12 have already signed up. So I don't want to coerce you, but if you're interested, call the missions department and ask for BJ. Well, you can call the church and ask for BJ. That's BJ Massa, and she's a wonderful lady who will give you the information you need in order to get you signed up, and then I'll begin to meet with you and get you ready for the trip. And thank you, somebody asked for prayer that we pray, a few people, for the situation in Egypt and so on. Isn't it fascinating how quickly... Things can be stirred up and extend with ramifications around the world, including our stock market, food prices, all the rest. It's just the nature of the world in which we live. Uh, it's a very uh, unstable situation in which we live. Please remember the rock of our salvation, who is not surprised by any of the headlines and expects for us to find our peace in him in spite of the circumstances, and be willing to pray uh, that all people would be reconciled to him. We don't show favorites as Christians. We're not, we don't have the luxury of uh, discrimination. <laughs> Two kinds of people, those who have the Son and those who do not have the Son. That's it. <laughs> and so we pray that the God of grace would extend himself in the Middle East now to peoples there who still yet do not have the sun. We're in Jeremiah chapter 36 and 37. Uh, we began last week. As you turn there, let me just uh, identify one of our wonderful class members who many of you know, but uh, want you to know about what she's going to be doing soon. Um, could I ask uh, Trish, even if, if you could just stand for a second so we could know who we're talking about? That's Patricia. And she's a wonderful person most of the time. And uh, last year, uh, she had the marvelous privilege of going to the United Nations in order to seek to be used of God. This was with others. It's a wonderful organization with regard to a pro-life agenda. And Trisha, such a wonderful vision. Think about it. If they could impact on one country leader. Uh, with regard to the sanctity of human life. Think about the ramifications. So that's the ministry. And she'll be leaving uh, on the 20th, and we need to pray for her, and we surely will the Sunday, formally the Sunday before she goes, but I want to invite you to be praying for her now. Um, when you do something like this, there's opposition from the evil one. So she's experiencing some of that as are her family members. So you've got to be praying that the Lord would intervene and find the evil one so that she could make her way there and back. Also, 
she will need while they are prayer partners. If you feel like you could offer that ministry to her, could you approach her before we take leave of one another and just say, uh, Trish, this is my name. Write me down. I will be one of your prayer warriors. Why by name? Because she wants to have people she can contact. Let's say they go and run into something and they need some prayer. She wants to be able to either email you or call your cell phone if that's permissible and say, can you pray? We're stuck in a snowstorm somewhere, (laughs) something like that. Or we have a marvelous opportunity to meet with uh, this person or that person. Can you pray God would open his or her heart? So if you're interested, well, I hope you're interested in praying for her now, but I mean specifically and in a targeted way as part of her team of prayer warriors. Again, that's that's our ministry. That's what we do. Please um, don't forget to go to uh, Patricia before we leave one another. Can you raise your hand again, Trish, in case you didn't pay attention the last time? That's who she is right there. Just give her your name and contact information. It won't be used for anything except to call upon you to pray. Jeremiah 36, you recall, is a chapter in which God said, Jeremiah, write. Write what I spoke and you heard. Why? Look at verse 3 of chapter 36 and you'll see God's motive. Perhaps the house of Judah will hear all the calamity I plan to bring in order that every man will turn from his evil way. What's a word for that? turn from his evil yeah 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 repent and then i'll forgive their sin look at the heart of god the people have terribly sinned against him he takes no pleasure however in turning over his people to judgment at the hands of the babylonians therefore he says jeremiah writes about impending judgment so that even at this point they may read hear repent and i will forgive them God is, the Bible uses this term, long-suffering. He desires for none to perish, but for all to be saved. That's his heart. On the other hand, he's holy. And if one does not turn from his evil way, that's repentance, then the only other option is to meet up with the judgment of God. It's irreversible. And then God repeats his motive again. Take a look, verse 7. Perhaps, again, see, Verse 3, perhaps. Verse 7, perhaps. Why perhaps? Well, God's given us choice. Free moral agency. He's powerful. He could force us to decide a certain way, but he doesn't. He wants us to choose to respond rightly. So verse 7, perhaps their supplication will come before the Lord and everyone will turn from his evil way. For great is the anger and the wrath that the Lord has pronounced against this people. Things are stirring up in the Middle East again. I don't think God takes pleasure in the fact that uh, terrible things are happening there, and it doesn't bode well for Israel. A very telling graphic was shown on one of the news stations last night, simply a map. Israel's allies, um, using the term loosely, in the Middle East are Egypt and Jordan. They're moderate uh, Arab states, and they're, they're, they are our allies as well. And uh, the leadership vacuum now in Egypt, uh, historically, 
in the Middle East and elsewhere has been filled by a more radical person than the one removed from office. So this is a very dangerous uh, kind, of, kind of situation. And there are similar uprisings, not to the same extent, but similar in Jordan even now to show sympathy for the um, uh, protests by the Egyptian people against their government. So if the king of Jordan um, is also forced out of office, then you have a, a, a leadership void there as well. The positions easily could be filled with, uh, well, it could be a, a situation like in Iran, very similar. You know, the Shah was removed. And you got the Ayatollahs, and we have, we have a maniac. He's not a maniac. He's demon-possessed. So, so uh, these things could happen. Anyway, you look on the map, and it showed all of Israel's surrounding neighbors in a certain color, massive land area. Then it had Egypt in one color and Jordan in another. And if, if they go the way of more uh, radical Islam, then it showed <laughs> Israel's land mass was like a dot. It was like a little speck. God says, if the sheep of his fold reject him, the good shepherd, they will be turned over to ravenous wolves. And that is what's happening in the Middle East. Uh, God is just in so doing. That doesn't make this a pleasurable thing for him. In Jeremiah earlier, we read a passage, uh, which is a very telling passage about the heart of God, he says, uh, I believe it's Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 7. He said, I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my inheritance. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. Can you hear the hurt heart of God? I've given, he's talking about Israel, I've given the beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. Yes, it will happen because God is holy and just, but he would prefer repentance. So we pray, oh God, grant repentance to uh, Arab peoples, Muslim peoples, Jewish peoples, all people. That's what we pray. Charles? It's a very interesting day in which, in what, in, w in which we, we live. Anyway, as in Jeremiah's day, so too today. You have to understand, God is not, pardon the expression, He's not a hothead. He doesn't act on impulse. He doesn't have a bad day. He doesn't get moody. He's consistently holy, and consistently compassionate. And He would rather have people, just as is clearly stated here, turn to Him accept his forgiveness, and avoid judgment. Well, in the day, Jehoiakim was the king. And this scroll on which was inscribed the words of God through circumstances, which I'm going to skip over, came uh, to his purview. 
And so would you read with me verse 22 of the chapter? You'll see what I mean. Now the king, Jehoiakim is his name. The king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month uh, with a fire burning in the brazier before him. What's all that mean? Let's see here, 605 B.C. It's about November, December. It's winter in Jerusalem. It could get cold. We were just there in in Jerusalem in uh, just a few weeks ago. It was cold. Could even snow from time to time. He's cold. Uh, It's November, December, the year 605 B.C. He's essentially by the fireplace. A brazier is a fire pot. He's warming up. And the winter house would simply be one of the uh, apartments, if you will, in the uh, general temple complex probably facing south you get more sun that's where he is warming up by the fire verse 23 when uh jehudi had read three or four columns that's how it was in the scrolls and ancient scrolls the scribe would write text in columns and then be unfold unraveled in a scroll so so when when the reader was reading three or four of the columns the king jehoiakim cut it with the scribe's knife threw it into the fire uh, that was in the brazier until all the scroll was consumed in the fire. He burned the word of God. I'm sure you agree. That's pretty serious. <sighs> it's a very gracious thing, don't you think, that the unseen God would reveal himself. He, he doesn't hide in the shadows. That's a very gracious thing. He reveals himself. And then on top of it, um, to take his revelation and show such blasphemous disrespect for it. So as to burn it up, I'm sure you realize it's going to bring with it a severe consequence. And here it is, verse 30. Therefore, see, the therefore is, uh, connects us to the king's actions. Because of his actions, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have no one to sit on the throne of David. See, when he passed the throne, this was the... Uh, custom would fall upon his son that would be a really good deal but there was forfeiture of that privilege because of his sin uh not only that his dead body is going to be cast out to the heat of the day frost of the night he's not even going to get a fit burial okay now if you go to chapter 37 verse 1 which chronologically is about 18 years later from what we just read 18 years later you're going to see the very specific fulfillment of the word which God pronounced upon him. It's an irony. The king showed tremendous disregard for the word of God, and it is the word of God which is being very precisely fulfilled here in chapter 37, verse 1. Look, now Zedekiah, son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had made king in the land of Judah, reigned as king in place of Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim. Coniah, or Jeconiah, he's variously known, was the son of Jehoiakim. He would have been the heir to the father's throne. The consequence put upon the king, however, was to disrupt this. And so now Zedekiah is on the throne instead of Jehoiakim's son. Zedekiah was Jehoiakim's brother, another son of Josiah. 
He was a vassal king whom Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, put in place. He was a puppet king because we see now the Babylonians are already laying siege to Jerusalem. That's how we can figure out it's about 18 years later. So this is kind of going on. Now, you would think Zedekiah, the new king, would get with the program because he has a history of what happens when you don't. He could look upon uh, the reign of his brother, Jehoiakim, see the consequence of ruling without being under the rule of God and therefore yield and submit. You would think that. Human nature. Wow. So look what happens. Verse 2. Neither he, Zedekiah, nor his servants, nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord, which he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. Folks, there's something really desperately wrong with us. We have a major problem and it has nothing to do with uh, the community in which we were raised the education we had good or bad quality our socioeconomic position it's worse than any of that there's something in us that causes us in absolute defiance of reason to disobey the word of God I think it's called sin. I cannot find evidence of the fact that we are born with a basically inherently good nature and we simply make some bad choices. I hear that a lot, but it seems to defy the evidence. <laughs> a blatant illustration, once again, of our proclivity to sin you think this guy would have learned from the experience of his brother before him. But there's something. You talk about your ultimate addiction. It's the addiction to sin. And there ain't no support group for that one. There ain't no 12 steps. There's just one. Oh, God, forgive me, a sinner. Come into my life. Empower change in me from inside of me by taking up your abode in me. That's it. There's no hope apart from it. Okay, so Zedekiah does his thing. Verse 3, Yet King Zedekiah sent Jehukal, son of Shelemiah, and Zephaniah, son of Messiah the priest, to Jeremiah the prophet, saying, Please pray to the Lord our God on our behalf. Wow. I wonder if this is called sheer and utter nonsense and hypocrisy. This is called a veneer of religiosity, which oftentimes you see and hear from politicians today. In an inaugural address, it may be a passage of Scripture usually incorrectly quoted. There may be a call for a national day of prayer and so on. So here you get this guy who's disobeying the plain and simple intent of the word of God who calls upon the man of God to pray for him. You know what he's probably praying? Pray to your God to relieve the consequences of our sin. Consequences. But that's not repentance. So today in our land, that's what prayer is too. God, 
do for me what I want you to do for me. God bless America. No, he already has. America, bless God by getting on your knees and yielding to him. Would that we had a leader who would call us to that kind of prayer meeting. We do not. And they did not. I just want to tell you, nothing's new under the sun. Nothing to do with political party. It has to do with the sin nature of humankind. That's the way it is. So he asked for prayer. Now Jeremiah, verse 4, is still coming, going, because they hadn't put him in prison yet. Meanwhile, Pharaoh's army set out from Egypt. And when the Chaldeans who had been besieging Jerusalem heard the report about them, they lifted the siege from Jerusalem. Here's what went down. Uh, The Pharaoh is a guy named Hophra. Uh, He ruled in Egypt from 589 to 570 B.C. This is real stuff. He made a deal with Zedekiah. He said, Zedekiah, the Babylonians are beating you up. Enter into alliance with us. We'll come to your assistance. Zephaniah, who refused alliance with God, accepts alliance with the Egyptian pharaoh. The Egyptian pharaoh keeps his word, comes up from Egypt, north to Jerusalem, to engage the Babylonians who at present are besieging Jerusalem. The Babylonians, therefore, have to withdraw their attention from besieging Jerusalem because they con- they're being confronted by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. See what's happening? Zephaniah thinks, wow, this is really cool. The heat's off. I knew it would work out. My counselors told me it would work out. It's working out. It's what it looks like. Verse 6, then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of God, God of Israel, You are to say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me to inquire of me, Behold, Pharaoh's army, which has come out for your assistance, is going to return to its own land of Egypt, and the Chaldeans will also return and fight against this city. They'll capture it, and they will burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, don't deceive yourselves, saying the Chaldeans will go away, for they will not go. So here's what God says. Jeremiah, the king wants a word. Give him this word. Tell them, don't deceive yourselves into thinking you are going to be able to evade my judgment on you and your land short of your repentance. Now, There's something you should see about human nature. When folks who lead nationally do not turn to God nor call their people to God, when there are the consequences of the judgment of God on the land, when leaders don't want to face up to that, they're prone to look to very superficial, positive things and attribute to those superficial indicators more than they ought. That's what this guy's doing. Oh, wow. There's no judgment. Everything's cool. We're fine. The Babylonians are gone. The stock market reflects this. It's fascinating to me. It's plummeted because of the crisis in Egypt. If it smooths out a little bit, which it may, I don't know, stocks will go up. It's interesting to me. After a State of the Union address, usually stocks go up. Four days later, they go down. 
These are expert economists <laughs> who, are, who render economic knee-jerk responses to very superficial indicators. See, it's a very interesting kind of thing. So God says, don't you deceive yourselves, which literally in the Hebrew means don't let this lift up your souls. You know what God is saying? Don't take any encouragement in the fact that you got a little temporary respite from the Babylonians because they're coming back. You see? So today, <laughs> you have folks who are denying reality. Here's the reality. The judgment of God is not in the future coming upon this land. The judgment of God is now upon this land. That's just the reality. It grieves me to say it. I'm an American, uh, but, but, but it's a reality. And uh, we see it uh, economically, $14 trillion. That is not called mismanagement of funds. That's called sin. That's called spending that which is not yours to spend. And the proposal to reduce it is sheer and utter nonsense. But it will get you reelected to a second term. It's a, um, it's a freeze on spending for the next five years. But it's a freeze on spending at the highest level of spending ever in the history of this country. <laughs> and at that rate, to chip away at the $14 trillion in debt means you and I are long gone. It's not happening. Why is it not happening? Because to really chip away at the debt means you have to cut entitlement programs. But if you cut entitlement programs, then the people who think they're entitled to it will not vote for you. And uh, the parties, both of our major parties, live to be reelected. So they say and do what it takes to be reelected. You talk about taxation without representation, uh, the basis upon which the revolution took place. We now have professional politicians, not of a party, of both parties, that are so, so far removed from the constituency that sent them. They, have not, they are professional. Do you know some of them have never even had a job? Well, that's true. That is very true. They're professional. This is absolutely not what the framers of our Constitution had in mind. They had in mind citizen warriors and citizens who serve for a spell, the federal government, and then return home after they serve. Today we have people who simply want to stay in Washington. Well, man, yes, your major job security. You get to vote yourself raises when everyone else is suffering severe unemployment and cutbacks. You get to charge unbelievable speaking fees. You, had, you got your health insurance. Take Totally removed. Totally removed from the population. Any party. Don't make the mistake of pinning this on a political party or a president. Oh, no. It's much. It's you. If you exchange the king of kings for hope. In a human king, you get what we done got. That's the situ. That's the situation. I'm not making a political statement. I'm making a spiritual statement. Okay, so, so God says, ah, ah. 
Every State of the Union address, every, not just this president, the last president, the one before him, that you, 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 certain ones are invited and they're put up in the audience. You know, they're up there on the second floor and the camera goes on them. It's usually someone in uniform or somebody or a lady is trying to make a go of it and whatever. <laughs> That's leadership by anecdote, not by character. Let me give you an anecdote. Let me pick out a story of this one or that one. How about other stories uh, of foreclosures, of uh, um, astounding numbers of kids being born without dads, with, out of wedlock, out of our whole educational system being uh, better financed than ever before but not giving us a good return on our investment? Why? Quality of teachers, I'm not buying that at all. Quality of equipment, I'm not buying that at all. When you send a kid home to a home with a mom, with other kids, by other men, and there's no man present to set bounds and check up on the kid's schoolwork, you know what you get? An insecure and angry kid who strikes out against society. So... Anecdotes get you elected. But God says, don't let this stuff pump up your souls. Don't be deceived. I'm judging your land. Because you, you keep wanting me to bless you. But I created you to be a blessing to me. And you've exchanged me for false gods. That's what we have. So anyway, verse 10, even if you defeated the whole army of the Chaldeans who were fighting against you, and, and if there was only wounded men left among them, they still would rise up and burn this city. In other words, when God says, I will judge, he will judge. It's unavoidable. So it happened when the army of the Chaldeans lifted the siege from Jerusalem because of Pharaoh's army. Jeremiah went out from Jerusalem and he went to the land of Benjamin. Why? Well, to take possession of some property. So here's what's happening. It's interesting. <laughs> There's like a lull in the conflict. Jeremiah says, I got to strike while the iron is hot. He goes north to Benjamin, because that's his hometown, Anatoth, about three miles north of Jerusalem. He has to settle some financial transaction, who knows, before the Babylonians really shut down things. So that's what he does. So it says, verse 13, while he was at the gate of Benjamin, that's a gate in the northern part of the city, a captain of the guard, whose name is Arija, son of Shelemiah, son of Hananiah, was there. Captain of the guard was there, sees Jeremiah, arrests him. He says, you are going over to the Chaldeans. He accused Jeremiah of, tr of treason. You're going over to the enemy side. Jeremiah says, no, that's a lie. I'm not doing it. But the captain of the guard wouldn't listen to him, so he arrested him and brought him to the officials. <sighs> Essentially, Jeremiah was accused of disloyalty, treason to the nation. Uh, the very opposite, opposite is true. He loved his countrymen and his country so much that he had to cry out to them, stop it, turn from your evil ways, turn to the God who blessed us with this land, who blessed us with this country. And so ironically, that very one who so loved the land and the people was accused of the opposite, of treason and disloyalty. I want to tell you something, my fellow Christians. I think we're going to increasingly see this happen to people like you and me. 
we will be accused of hate crimes for so loving our country that we must declare to it God's moral absolutes. And so when you do that, you can now be accused of hate crimes and in our day put into jail. I am not being overly dramatic. It's happened. It is happening already in our day. The very ones, Christian citizens who love this land, serve in its military, pay taxes, make a contribution to the well-being of the country, know its roots founded on Judeo-Christian moral and ethical principles, grieve the drift. We don't despise the country. We don't despise democracy. We love it. We defend it. We're going to be accused of the opposite, just as it was with Jeremiah. Already, already, that's well underway. So the officials, verse 15, were angry at Jeremiah. They beat him, put him in jail. Ironically, (laughs) the jail was in the house of Jonathan, who was a scribe. They made it into a prison. So Jonathan (laughs) is writing scripture, copying it. He's a religious guy. They jail the man of God in his house. (laughs) Interesting. Jeremiah came into the dungeon. It's a vaulted cell. What does that mean? Um, in Jonathan's house, which is probably in the temple precincts because uh, he was a scribe, you got a lot of underground stuff. In fact, if you go to Israel today, Jerusalem, you can spend a lot of your time in underground tunnels. And you see vaults, vaulted rooms, which could have been used as water cisterns. Well, they simply converted one of those uh, into a jail, and they stuck Jeremiah into it. Cold, damp, this whole kind of a thing. So Zedekiah, verse 17, get this. Remember, he's a king. He sent and took him out, took Jeremiah out. And in his palace, the king secretly asked him, what do you mean secretly? What's the deal? At a time when Israel needed a strong godly leader, they had a weak ungodly leader. I can hardly point to any country of the world today, hardly, that has a strong godly leader. It's it's unbelievable. So what, why is this king? He's the king. Why do you get to meet with this dude secretly? Because <laughs> the king didn't want anyone to know he's hanging out with religious people. That's the deal, man. You don't get elected now. You know you can invite them to the White House once a year. Your clergy of every ilk, and and give them lunch and all this kind of stuff and play your game. But you're not aligning yourself with anyone in particular because if you do that, you're going to forfeit the votes of the others. So today we don't have leadership by truth and by conviction and by character. We got it by electability. It's the same thing there. Nothing's new. So Zedekiah recognizes something in Jeremiah, but he does it in secret. He meets with him. So he asks him and says, hey, hey, is there a word from the Lord? Jeremiah says, oh, yeah. (laughs) And here's the word he gives him. You will be given into the hand of the king of Babylon. Whoa, baby. What would you do if you're Jeremiah? 
you're Jeremiah. You're in a rat-infested, cold, damp dungeon. You don't know when you're getting out. This is an opportunity to say, you know, there's a word from the Lord. Oh, King, God told me to tell you everything's cool. You, like, got it going on. You're doing everything. God loves you. You know, all this stuff, these bad guy Babylonians, temporary setback. Everything's cool. But Jeremiah spits it out because a representative of the word of God doesn't have the option of compromising it. So he says, you're going down, king. Moreover, Jeremiah said to the king, by the way, how have I sinned against you, your servants, your people? What's the deal? That I, why am I in prison? Then verse 19, you got to love this. Jeremiah says to the king, um, by the way, your kingship, where are your um, prophets who prophesied to you, you know, saying, the king of Babylon will not come against you or against this land. Excuse me, king. Who's that knocking at the door? That sounds like a Babylonian knock to me. Where are your prophets who said? See, so today you've got political leaders who assemble around them, counselors who will tell them what they want to hear. And it better be positive. It better be good. And you have in certain churches even, prominent churches, pastors who tell people what they want to hear. Positive. Do you mean to tell me one billion Muslim sincere devout people will go to hell simply because they don't believe in Jesus? Well, it's not for me to say. I don't remember that. Well, then who is it to say except those calling themselves representatives of Almighty God? Positive message. Positive. Hold hands. Sing songs. Get along. Give each other awards. Pats on the back. And the Babylonians are knocking at the door. You see? Where are your prophets? You see? But now, look what Jeremiah does. Kind of takes advantage of the opportunity. Got the king's ear. Verse 20. Uh, King, will you let my petition come before you and don't make me return to the house of Jonathan because I'm going to die there. And so the king gave commandment. They committed Jeremiah to the court of the guardhouse and gave him a loaf of bread daily from the Baker Street until all the bread in the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in that place. So the king moved him from the dungeon thing and put him in a different uh, place of confinement where he would be um, more protected. And he got a loaf of bread from Baker Street. That's how they named him in those days. Like, like, like the shoemakers would be Cobbler Street, the Baker's Baker Street. And the loaf that he got was not like Wonder Bread, like we think, you know, sliced. It was round, flat, probably an inch thick, about nine inches across, kind of like a pita bread, which is um, uh, eaten in Middle East, in the Middle East today. Good stuff. 
So he, he got a loaf of bread a day until it ran out. What do you mean ran out? See, the Babylonians are there. They're going to starve the people out. So the king notices something about Jeremiah, but he can't let it out. It's got to be secret. And he noticed something about Jeremiah. So he asked Jeremiah to pray for him. But none of that equals true repentance. So don't be fooled by our politicians who whisper sweet Bible verses in your ear. When you, you know, they give holy messages when the, uh, the clergy show up for their luncheon and then enact uh, same-sex marriage legislation, uh, kill baby legislation. <laughs> exactly. Uh, get the old people out of the way, Charlie, because they're draining the economy. You know, but let's have a prayer breath. So, so don't be fooled. You know, oh, I know he's, this one's a Christian. That one's a, he prays. Can I tell you something? Prayer, if not directed to the right object, is hocus pocus magical thinking. Who are you praying for? What? what who are you praying to? What? Even. God said even to his covenant people in Isaiah, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God such that he doesn't hear your prayers. Folks, so why why are we saying all this stuff? Get us all hot and bothered and angry like me? No, don't do that. It's bad for you. Don't do that. I think mainly what I'd like for us to get out of this is what's new? Accept the mercies of God. So we appeal to him. Oh, God. Human nature, governments. Government is God's idea. The way people govern ain't. But what's new? What's new? You know, our government leaders who are at each other's throat, they can't get it together, sit down next to each other for one evening at the State of the Union message, and they think we're so stupid, we're going to think that means anything? Come on. And it takes a congressman getting shot to bring them together to sit together? Come on. Government is God's idea, but not that, that, not, not that kind of governance. Come on. So what do we do? We say, oh, God, we deserve your judgment, but please have mercy on us. So we pray for our leaders and all in authority. We do not pray against them. We pray for their safety and that of their family. We pray that God might so affect them that they would make decisions in accordance with his will. We pray that policies would be enacted, thus allowing us, God's people, to function as a worship community freely in this land. That's what we pray. Why? Because citizens of heaven must use spiritual weaponry. And that's the number one spiritual weapon. Pray, pray, pray. Got an email from one of our contacts in... uh, Israel, who just led us through the land a few weeks ago. He's a missionary our church supports. And he just sent an email on 
his perspective on what's happening in the Middle East, and it was quite an interesting analysis. But at the end, he said, why am I writing? I want to ask you all to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. What does that mean? Political peace? No, 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 no. It means the kind of peace that comes into people's lives when they are reconciled with the Prince of Peace. So that's what we pray for Egyptian people who are hurting terrible poverty, terrible disarray. It's not good. We pray for Muslim people and Arab people and all kinds of people. Oh, God, grant repentance, open eyes. Why? This is what I pray. Oh, God, why me? and not somebody else. Is that person worse than me? No. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't pray with arrogance. We don't pray down. We pray as recipients of mercy and grace that the God of all grace would see fit to show his mercy and grace to others who are lost without him. That's what we do. That's the distinctively Christian position. And it bears fruit. I'm in Israel, in the north, sitting with two people, a Jewish gal from, I think, Philadelphia, who made Aliyah, which means going up to Jerusalem, became an Israeli citizen. She's a missionary, Jewish believer, kind of a music ministry. She has a very beautiful voice. She was next to a man, uh, an Arab man, saved from a Muslim background. I think I told you this last week. Lives in an Arab community. Uh, his wife is still quite a devout Muslim lady. Her people want to kill her. His people want to kill him. And they have the giver of life now in common. Different genders. <laughs> different ethnicity. Different uh uh, culture, different language, different native citizenry, different everything. And they sat there arm in arm as brother and sister in Christ. The United Nations can't do it. The Secretary of State of the United States, give me a break, can't. But Jesus can pull things together. An Arab Muslim man and a Jewish woman brother and sister in Christ. I saw it with my eyes. I got a picture. I will forever remember this picture. I got a picture of, of the two. That's the only solution. The Lord Jesus is the only solution. So, Lord Jesus, we bow before you. So grateful to be saved. And now we have your mind, your thoughts translate life events differently. We have a different sense of what's right and what's wrong. We have your moral character implanted within us. It's wonderful. Undeserved. Therefore, we will perish the thought. We would ever look down on anybody else. No, we look up to you on behalf of those who are still lost. Egyptian people, Syrian, Jordanian, Israeli, American. Oh, God. 
do not withdraw your spirit. Send your spirit with power and mind to convict of sin and judgment and righteousness. And, oh, God, thank you for entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation by which we plead with all people be reconciled to God. Bless our ministry for thy name's sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you all. If we're still here on the planet, see you next week.